Hey, you're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Dankman. Okay, let's get right to it because we're starting a year that is sure to be politically consequential. We can't predict much, but I can say that one for sure. And in fact, I talked about that a lot with outgoing Seattle City Council member Teresa Mosqueda. She sat down for an interview with me over the holidays, and we spoke for more than an hour. We're going to spend most of the show today sharing portions of that conversation. There have been few people who have made as big an impact on Seattle politics in recent years as Mosqueda. She was first elected to a citywide position on Seattle City Council in 2017. She came out of organized labor as a former campaign director for the AFL-CIO. She was part of a progressive wing on the city council that pushed for taxing big business and expanding worker protections. She was also part of the majority of the council that supported a defund the police framework put forward by decriminalization and racial equity advocates in 2020. The police department was never actually defunded, let's be clear about that. But since then, Mosqueda has supported alternative programs like expanding the Seattle Fire Department's non-emergency response team. Mosqueda was re-elected in 2021, and then early last year, she announced she would run for the King County Council seat, being vacated by a retiring Joe McDermott. In November, she won that election to represent parts of Capitol Hill, West Seattle, White Center, Burien, and Vashon Island at the county level. That means Mosqueda is stepping down from position eight on the city council midway through her term. Today, in fact, she's scheduled to be sworn in to the county council on Wednesday. We talked about her legacy on the city council and what lies ahead for both the position she's leaving and the one she's stepping into. And I started by asking why she wanted to leave city government to join the King County Council at all. Lots of people have asked me why. Why move to the county? The number one reason is public health. I get calls every day from constituents. People want to know what are we doing about the behavioral health crisis, the mental health crisis, the opiate addiction crisis, domestic violence, interpersonal violence. Really, the shadow pandemic is all things public health. And the city, as much as we have tried to make investments over the years into this area, most of that funding goes to King County. King County has purview and the purse strings over public health. It is the place to be to address the shadow pandemic. It's the place to be to go back to my roots, which started in public health at CMAR Community Health Centers and the Washington State Department of Health, Children's Alliance and Community Health Plan of Washington. That's where I started my career. And going back to public health and being able to serve as a public servant at the county really feels full circle. And it also feels like the most pressing crises that continue to play out in our community revolve around health. So I'm excited to go back and continue the work on housing and worker supports as well as direct investments in public health. I think in some ways it feels like there can be a disconnect between what the county does and what individuals, constituents, um, and, and, and residents of the county see. You know, we all know our city council member perhaps first before you know who your King County council member is. But everyone who pays property taxes knows <laughs> that they pay property taxes to the county. So what kind of work are you most invested in at the county level that will create tangible results for people who live in King County? Well, number one, King County has had a population growth just like Seattle has had. Um, But across King County, you see greater diversity, diversity in terms of working families and the number of people that are coming in as immigrants and refugees. In fact, King County's population is nearly half people of color, a quarter immigrant and refugee. And in the history of King County Council, there has never been a Latina or a Latino ever serving this diverse and growing population. And now with the elections from last year, 
year. Myself and Jorge Barron will be joining King County Council. We will be the first Latina and Latino to ever be elected to King County Council. And it will be the first time we're ever having more than one person of color serving on King County Council's history. So I'm thrilled to join my colleagues. All nine of us, I think, are dedicated to creating a more livable, affordable, workable uh, county. And the number one issue for me is continuing our investments in creating affordable housing. As you know, I think I put my um, flag down on trying to create more affordable housing throughout Seattle. In fact, we've increase the number of dollars going into affordable housing sixfold over my time on Seattle City Council. But many of working families who work in Seattle, they actually live just outside of the Seattle. Sure, they commute in. They commute in. Sometimes it's by bus, sometimes it's by car, but they're spending an hour plus in their car or on the bus trying to get into work. Well, you know what? We need more affordable housing across this region. And I'm thrilled to be on King County Council, investing in more affordable housing, working with local jurisdictions and the unincorporated areas to create more affordable housing across our region, across our county. And that is an economic stimulator because I ask small business owners all the time, what is the number one thing you would want me to do? If I had a magic wand, what would you want? And universally, small business owners tell me, we need more housing and child care for workers. Since I was talking with Councilmember Mosqueda in the last days of her tenure on the city council, I figured it was a good time to look back at her legacy there. When I asked what she believes will have the most lasting impact, she listed four accomplishments. Passing the city's housing levy and getting more affordable rental housing built, raising labor standards, including passing a domestic workers' bill of rights and guaranteed benefits like paid sick leave for gig workers. And finally, a wonky one, transparency legislation that helps the city council make more informed budget deliberations. Mosqueda was the budget chair for four years. But let's get right to the biggest thing she'll probably be remembered for. That's the jumpstart tax. It took effect in January of 2021. It applies to big, mostly tech sector businesses, those with payroll over $8.1 million and salaries over $174,000 a year. When jumpstart passed in 2020, funds were specifically earmarked for affordable housing, small businesses, equitable development and Green New Deal initiatives. Mosqueda has battled with two mayors, Jenny Durkin and Bruce Harrell, over their desire to use the revenue for different programs and budget shortfalls. Mosqueda argued spending guardrails should remain in place to protect public trust. We're talking about the largest corporations with the highest salaries paying just a little bit more into investing in housing, in Green New Deal investments, in equitable development, and economic resilience, which is for small business and workers. Absent jumpstart, and this is something that probably doesn't get a lot of attention like in the headlines, but absent jumpstart, we would have had an economic crisis in the city of Seattle starting in 2020. We passed jumpstart within a three-month period at the beginning of the pandemic, building on the years, if not decades, of advocacy around additional progressive revenue, taking the reins and the baton from the state legislature when they tried to pass a payroll tax in the halls of Olympia in 2020. When they couldn't get it done, they handed the baton to me and we got it over the finish line. Jumpstart is bringing in over $275 million a year. It is directly investing in affordable housing and economic resilience. It is creating a greener new economy and it is helping spur workforce development in green new sectors. It is also preventing our city right now from going into the red. As we know, we have the most regressive tax system in the entire country, and we have the largest city in the state. And the absence of progressive revenue means that things like economic downturns, which the COVID crisis exacerbated, 
meant that our revenue stream to the city of Seattle was depleting drastically at the beginning of 2020. But for Jumpstart, we would have had to lay people off. Programs would have had to shut down. Direct services for our most vulnerable communities would have been eliminated. It is one of the most impressive policies that has been really generated by community. And I was able to help pull together a broad coalition and pass it, keep our city in the black and help to invest in core services that will have generational impact. We've this is part of the reason we've been able to have a sixfold increase in affordable housing because of Jumpstart. So I want to lean in on the Jumpstart tax. Let's do it. You talked about the ways that it has helped keep the general fund afloat, especially during COVID. It's been raising more money than expected. Obviously, Amazon doesn't like the tax that they say that Seattle has become hostile to business. The Chamber of Commerce has asked the Jumpstart tax be suspended to boost economic activity in downtown Seattle. On the other hand, expanding the Jumpstart tax was an option put forward by a working group looking at bridging this huge revenue shortfall that Seattle's facing in 2025. Um, You recently helped pass an expansion, just a small one of $20 million, to pay for more mental health counselors in Seattle public schools. What do you think the future of the Jumpstart tax should be? Do we expand this as we are seeing a bigger and bigger budget canyon opening up in in front of the city? Well, let me first start with the facts that taxes and revenue is not punitive, especially in a city where we see tremendous growth, tremendous growth that was exponentially higher and more lucrative on our tech sector here in Seattle at the beginning of COVID. To ask those companies who are doing extremely well, especially during the beginning of COVID, to pay a little bit more into the city that paves the roads, that provides child care for workers, that ensures that um, water is running on time, that makes our our city workable and thus more productive and profitable for corporations, that's just about equity. It is also really good for the employer, whether it's Amazon or any other large company, to have more housing for workers. Uh, It is incredibly important that we invest in the fabric and the infrastructure of jurisdictions that are making it possible for corporations to be profitable. That's what Jumpstart does. Um, So first of all, I think that it's important to put that in the framework of why we're asking these corporations to pay a little bit more into creating housing and economic resilience, equitable development, and Green New Deal investments. Number two, we saw that the growth for the tech sector, including small startup companies, continued to skyrocket in Seattle, even after the implementation of Jumpstart. So you reject this idea that, for example, businesses are not coming back to downtown because of Jumpstart. Right. I reject that. And in fact, I would say that when we look at the recession from 2000, 2008 and um, prior recessions, and we see other jurisdictions, even states, that during the last Great Recession cut services and reduced the funding that they put into um, the the community, and they cut taxes. It actually prolonged recession. It made it worse not only for the public sector recovery, but for the private sector recovery, too. So I would actually add that by investing into our city via Jumpstart, we are actually going to be able to withstand economic downturns faster. We're going to be able to see a more robust and rebounding economy. And that's not just coming from me. That's coming from, you know, Center for Budget and Policy Priorities um, and others who are at the national level who looked at what happened in prior recessions. So I think that the indications that we're seeing so far of where corporations are doing well right now post jumpstart implementation uh, backs up that data that we saw from the Great Recession. And we also know that it's really good for 
local employers to be able to have affordable housing, more housing across the board. That is part of what Jumpstart invests in. So should it continue to expand? I mean, is it the answer for this large budget hole or is that against the initial impetus for the tax, which was to focus on housing. I have been very firm in my belief that the Jumpstart Progressive Payroll Tax should stay committed to the four pillars that we worked with over a hundred organizations and you know nearly a thousand individuals who came to testify in support of. I think we have a social contract to the folks who supported it, including large and small businesses who were there to support it, thanks to folks from Expedia and Ethan Stoll, along with housing advocates and environmental advocates, labor advocates. I want us to keep our commitments to those four pillars that we wanted to invest in. I do think that there is a conversation as the uh, revenue stabilization work group identified. Jumpstart is one of the few vehicles that we have to potentially increase revenue for the city in the long haul. So perhaps there's a conversation about how we increase it and how much to increase it. But the closing the gap for the city in terms of expenses and revenue should not be solely reliant on expanding Jumpstart because it is a volatile sector still. We still have a lot of unknowns about how uh, the tech sector will play out over the next 10 plus years. And to solely rely on that revenue source alone would not be very responsible. There could be a boom and bust cycle where the city would lose out on revenue and there could be catastrophic consequences. Exactly. So I think in addition to looking at how to maybe adjust Jumpstart, protect the investment categories that are there, but maybe there's some short term things that you could do to toggle with the dollar amounts uh, on the initial side, but we need more revenue tools in our toolkit. I'm excited, uh, hopefully starting tomorrow at the county, to be part of the team that advocates in the halls of Olympia for additional tools for local jurisdictions. Like, I think we should have a progressive real estate excise tax. They did it in Los Angeles County, where sales of property over $5 million had a higher tax that got brought back to the local jurisdiction. That is going into housing in Los Angeles. I want to do something like that here. It could be part of the solution. That that would require the legislature to act, right? Because you can only, at the county level, level do sales tax and property tax for right now. Exactly. So a progressive REIT, if given the authorization from the state legislature, is a potential tool. Because you're jumping from one budget crisis in the city of Seattle that, you know, is looming to another one in the county. The county is also facing a a shortfall that's going to require either cuts or revenue. And a progressive REIT could potentially help um, the city of Seattle as well. Another tool at the state level that if we were given the authority could potentially help, and I know that Mayor Harrell expressed some interest in evaluating this policy a little bit more too, is a um, vacancy tax. If we have X number of properties that are sitting vacant and derelict, let's make sure that there's revenue coming back into our city to either activate those spaces or to ensure that we're creating more opportunities for smaller businesses or people to find housing. So there's other tools that I think we can both advocate for at the state level, that we can potentially explore at the city, and Jumpstart is potentially one of those. What about a version of Jumpstart in the county, like a business tax if the legislature would allow it? Yeah, I think that that's another option because you look across the pond and we have a number of regional uh, employers who are also at that higher level of payroll in our region. I have a feeling Amazon is looking across Lake Washington and wondering, why are we getting taxed and Microsoft is not? And this goes back to the where the impetus started from. In 2020, the goal of the state legislature was to have this statewide. I think that that would be a great way to go. Um, and I also think having jurisdictional ability to do that across the county would be um, a good option as well. And lastly, I have to say, 
Other jurisdictions like San Francisco and Portland have already implemented a CEO ratio tax. For high pay CEOs. Exactly. And it starts at 100 to 1. So if your CEO makes 100 times more than the median worker, that's when they start assessing. And I think there's a lot of work that could be done at the city. We teed up some of that work uh, in the last few months. But unfortunately, uh, it does need additional uh, analysis. And I'm hopeful that the next council may pick it up and be one of those tools in the toolkit to close the revenue gap. You're listening to my conversation with former Seattle City Council member Teresa Mosqueda, who just stepped down from that job, and she's preparing to be sworn into a new job tomorrow on Tuesday. Mosqueda will be representing parts of Seattle on the King County Council. I asked her about the results of the November elections in Seattle, where five new city council members, Rob Saka, Joy Hollingsworth, Maritza Rivera, Kathy Moore, and Bob Kettle, represented the centrist Democrat candidates in each of their races. The progressive first-time candidates and even incumbent Andrew Lewis were all defeated. A couple of incumbents, including Tammy Morales, held on. And this has all been read as a message from Seattle voters that they are tired of some of the more progressive left-leaning politics of the last decade, and they want to see the pendulum swinging rightward on law enforcement, homeless encampment clearances, and other issues. So I asked Mosqueda how she views it. Well, I think that there's common ground in wanting to see action, whether it's on uh, creating more housing for those who are experiencing homelessness, whether it's getting more people into the health services who are experiencing behavioral health or substance abuse crises. We all want to see more action. Unfortunately, I think the way some of those common ground ideas have been politicized in this last election meant that there was fault lines where you're there on one side or the other. I don't know that it's that clear, though, of a divide, right? I know that Joy and Kathy, for example, so District 3 and District 5, those are two candidates who talked about the need for additional new progressive revenue in their campaigns. So I'm really hopeful as folks come in, they'll continue to identify ways to move forward to close that revenue gap. I've heard many of the candidates also you know, praise Jumpstart while also talking about the need for additional labor protections. Those are things that I happen to you know, see as um, pillars of my last six years as well. Across sort of the last two elections, perhaps three, I think that there's been a desire to quickly come up with that conclusion that voters just wanted something else. But my campaigns and my elections, I think, tell a different story. In 2021, when people thought that there was an anti-incumbent message sent, I not only won my re-election, but I won it with the highest percentage of anybody on the ballot citywide that year. Last uh, year in the campaign for King County Council, I also won with a 10-point spread. And I think that that is also an indication that people want to see action, right? It's not just about progressive policies, I think. It's about someone who is able to bring people together and show immediate action. So I'm hoping the, the candidates get in there and, and help uh, work in a collegial way, especially with the county. Can't wait to be there. And we can um, together move forward and, and show the voters action together. I think that's why I want to ask you about this is because in the same election where, for example, you know, Lorena Gonzalez is not mayor, Nicole Thomas Kennedy is not the city attorney. And now we have this wave of more moderate Democrats, at least, you know, in their messaging in the campaign, who have swept into the council. Danny Westneat labeled this voters' rejection of, quote, lefty experimentalism. 
And yet, as you mentioned, you were reelected. You also won with a comfortable margin in King County. So there is something about your messaging as a progressive in this area that is landing that maybe did not land in these other elections. And what is it? I love that question. I mean, I guess I would have to ask um, if the common thread is getting back to working families. I came in strongly connected to the labor movement, and all of the labor policies that we've passed have been informed by workers, have been informed by labor leaders, have been informed by what the labor movement is collectively asking for. And you look across this country, and that has momentum. Voters, I think, are also emblematic of the labor movement and want to see progressive change. So whether it's fighting for additional housing and being able to produce that with union labor, whether it's creating additional behavioral health and mental health services like we did when I worked in partnership with Councilmember Zahalai and we created the crisis care levy with um, Executive Constantine's team, we centered labor in that to make sure that workers had the ability to care for people. Not only was there a place for to bring people, but there was a place to care people. I'm wearing my, you know, uh, fire department shirt today because we've done a tremendous amount of work in partnership with the chiefs and with IAFF 27, who has wanted to respond to the public health crisis and the public safety crisis by making sure there was actually some place to bring people, a landing zone for those who are chronically living without their health needs met and without housing and without their medication. So that is what we've tried to do. I think centering policy with the experience of those who've been most affected and the workers who are trying to find solutions has resulted in not only progressive change, but I'm hoping for lasting change as well. Teresa Mosqueda had a lot more to say about what helped her win while many progressives fell short. And in fact, after we spoke, she sent us an email with even more thoughts. We're sharing that on our website. We talked about another topic that is top of mind for many Seattle residents, public safety. It was central to the last election when most successful candidates campaigned on improving relations between the Seattle City Council and the police department. Mosqueda herself voted against boosting hiring bonuses for new SPD officers, which Mayor Harrell had said was part of his plan to hire 500 more officers over five years. I asked her if she believes there is a staffing challenge for local law enforcement agencies, and if so, what can be done about it? Well, there's absolutely a staffing challenge in local law enforcement that we're experiencing across the nation. But the Washington Post, along with other news outlets, have pointed to multiple resources and analyses that show that the problem cannot just be solved by throwing more money at it. And the takeaway is that we can look upstream for how we can prevent people from ever interacting with an officer or the criminal justice system in the first place by investing in things that I, as budget chair and the council, have prioritized. When we invest in domestic violence and interpersonal violence reduction strategies, it helps to reduce the chance that someone will ever interact with an officer in the first place. When we invest in gun violence reduction programs and youth violence reduction programs, it reduces the chance that someone will ever interact with an officer and get arrested in the first place. When we invest in housing and additional worker supports and workforce training and youth training opportunities, it reduces the chance that someone will ever interact with an officer. And why is that important? Because we do not currently have enough officers to respond to many of these low level calls that they keep getting sent to and the chance to respond to some of these calls by a mental health provider or a counselor or a, a housing connector that is a much more useful 
interaction than having an officer with a gun show up to someone who is having a health-related crisis. What we have done over the last four years is to try and move some of the funding into upstream solutions to free up officers to respond to crimes in action and to investigate crimes. That is something they've asked for so that they're not responding to some of these low-level crimes. And we've tried to deploy more people, uh, like through the new department, the CARES department, and uh, community organizations that are working on co-response models to arrive at these calls in the first place. That saves money, that saves lives, and that saves time. On the staffing incentive issues, that was something that our own internal department, including the Human Resources Department and members of the Seattle Police Department internally said, we don't actually think hiring bonuses are a good thing because it will only increase um, resentment within the city and it will decrease morale. It's not actually the long-term solution to helping to identify ways to get people into these positions. And instead, as the Washington Post reported, we should be looking at ways that we're changing the response model for officers so people stay in these positions longer term. And I'll end with saying this. Not only do we think that this is a model that other jurisdictions are looking at to try to respond to the decreased police staffing, traditional staffing as we know it. But when I was in a meeting in White Center just a few weeks ago, the members of the CMAR Community Health Centers pulled together a large table that involved the police chief, Chief Diaz, and members of the King County Sheriff's Office, along with the Human Services Department in Seattle and Department of Neighborhoods and a number of community organizations there. And they asked the chief of police, Chief Diaz, like, what do you need? How can we help invest more? Does Is it just more officers? His initial response was, you know, I'm really excited about the $14 million that the Human Services Department is deploying for early intervention strategies to respond to crises early and make sure that there's more case managers. That is actually the $14 million that we freed up in 2020. And similar to what Mayor Harrell did last year when he sent his budget down, he freed up $20 million that was just being held in SBD and put that into general fund investments. That's good budgeting, and it's also being applauded by our police chief, who sees those human service investments as a complementary investment into what SPD is doing. That frees up his officers, and it helps provide early intervention and case management services in community. Is there a tension here because we're seeing these longer-term solutions, the upstream solutions that you're talking about, investing in social services, investing in education, investing in youth interventions, things like that, that will pay dividends down the road and perhaps are already starting to. And yet the more acute, immediate stuff that's happening today, say, you know, drive-by in the Central District that has a bullet going through a daycare window, or the number of murders in the city being at the highest number that it's been since the early 90s, that people are feeling like they need an officer with a badge and a gun to respond to. Um, Is there something that can be done in the meantime to either address immediate acute problems or address the perception that people have when they hear that there's a staffing problem at SPD? The number one thing I think it's important to remind listeners is over the last four years since the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor murders and so many more across the nation that called for a moment of reckoning, right? This racial reckoning, recognizing that our policies over the years had been causing harm over policing in certain communities was leading to more people dying and more people being harmed. That was what 2020 was all about and should continue to be our charge to reckon with the harms that certain systems are causing um, communities members. At the same time, every year, the 
full hiring plan that the Seattle Police Department has asked for in the proposed budget has been honored. Every single year, that hiring plan has been fully funded. City Council funded it, and in addition to that, as you just noted, um, some of the council members added to the budget last year the hiring incentive dollars and additional funding for a recruitment strategy. Not all of those dollars were even spent by the department or the mayor last year. So they are trying as hard as they can to hire more people. Every dollar is available to them that they ask for. So we are still actively recruiting officers and we're investing in those upstream solutions at the same time. So we're not waiting for something. And the proof is already coming in. I'll give you one great example where we have tangible, immediate results. And that's the harborside gun violence interrupter strategy, where if somebody has been involved in, uh, you know, has been shot themselves and is in Harborview, and the likelihood that someone will then pick up a gun and retaliate is very high. But when we bring in the gun violence interrupter program that Harborview runs, the chances of someone re-engaging in gun violence has decreased dramatically. We have the data that shows that that program is already providing dividends. It's already ensuring that fewer people engage in gun violence. And it's a restorative justice model to try to make sure that fewer people ever interact with an officer in the future and fewer people die at the hands of a gun. Um, So that's a good example of where this intervention strategy is already proving to be effective. Let's move on to another really intractable seeming problem. Um, You know, the fentanyl crisis is something that has hit King County especially hard. It's a problem across the country, but there were 1,200 overdose deaths in King County this year. That number has tripled over the past four years. One example of a potential policy avenue to pursue is safe consumption sites. And you've said that you would like the county and the city to uh, re-examine those, to revisit those. Uh, Where does that effort stand and why do you support the idea of safe consumption sites? Well, safe consumption sites is at its core a public health intervention strategy. Um, If you think back 10, 20 years when we had needle exchange programs, those were highly controversial at the time. And now they are a known public health intervention strategy. In fact, many people want them in their community because they reduce the chance that somebody is using outdoors in the elements. They reduce the chance that somebody is going to be pricked by a needle and they actually reduce transmittable um, diseases as well. This is a good public health strategy, but we also know that it can't be a standalone. Overdose prevention sites really do help reduce the chance that somebody will die from an overdose, but they also increase the chance that someone will be able to get into treatment. We have data from national institutions, um, other jurisdictions that have deployed safe consumption. Vancouver, BC has done a lot of work on this. Vancouver, exactly. And other cities have looked into this as well. Really, overdose prevention sites help bring people into treatment. They help ensure people have a path towards getting to sobriety if that's what they um, are able to do with the help of someone who they're interacting with. And I think it's one tool in a bigger toolbox, right, to help get people into the treatment services they need. Now, Councilmember Nelson and I, we disagree about a lot of things when we're out on the dais. But one thing that we absolutely agree on is anytime someone is ready to get into treatment, we need to reduce any barrier to getting into that care. And some of the strategies that we have deployed um, are going to complement this public health intervention approach like overdose prevention sites. Number one, thanks to the voters across King County, we have the crisis care levy. Again, I was proud to have worked on that with Executive Constantine and Councilmember Zahalai's team. When we pulled that policy together, it was partially in response to some of the calls that we are getting on a daily basis at the city. There is no place to bring people. The firefighters say we can't bring people anywhere because there's no, no facilities open. King County being the 
place that has purview over public health, worked to help create this policy. Those crisis care centers, though, those five centers uh, are not stood up yet. And yeah. in the meantime, lots of people are thinking, is there a way to help deploy some of that funding into mobile units to really arrive to help people in the moment that they're trying to seek care? Councilmember, you recently voted against a new law which made public use and possession of illegal drugs a gross misdemeanor in Seattle that the Seattle City Attorney can now prosecute. In its first month through November, SPD reported several dozen arrests and said most of those cases went to diversion instead of prosecution. That's where the county comes in, right? The LEAD program, that's the Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion Program, is a partnership between Seattle and King County. The county funds a lot of those treatment beds. But capacity is an issue, and Seattle's new law didn't have any additional funding for treatment. What happens when police pick somebody up who's a candidate for diversion? Is there anywhere to send them? Is that capacity there? Well, I do think that this is another area where we're going to need additional state support as well. I think that the resources are not sufficient at the city or the county level to respond to the crisis. We have to provide the services locally. People are expecting there to be solutions, and we cannot arrest our way out of this crisis. In fact, we know when people are arrested for consumption, they are more likely to die of an overdose um, upon release of jail. Uh, They are more likely to have... um, health complications when they are arrested as well. And the longer term solution is just getting people into treatment. So I'm excited that the county has some tools, thanks to the voters for the crisis care levy. I'm excited that the state legislature has done more every single year to try to address this crisis. But part of the solution has to be not only investments in places to bring people, but mobile units to meet people where they're at, and the workforce necessary to ensure that there are people there to help people. What about citing these kinds of resources? I mean, I mean, safe consumption sites or overdose prevention sites have a really hard time in all these communities where they have been stood up. There's been huge pushback by neighbors. They don't want to see this next door. Um, It's a similar thing when you look across King County and you see the cities that have pushed back on different homeless services, housing options being cited or shelter options being cited in their cities. I mean, as a county, you need buy-in from the local cities. Like, what do you do when all these places are saying, no, not us? Well, I think that the question applies to a number of services that I think our region wants to deploy. Regionally, we know we need additional services for those who are living unsheltered. We need additional places for people to live longer term. We need additional health services across the spectrum. Uh, My commitment as a future King County Council member as of tomorrow is going to be making sure that we're having collaborative, deep engagement with community, especially with the local jurisdiction leaders from those areas, before anything is deployed or rolled out. I think we've seen a few examples over the last few years where people felt that there wasn't actually deep community engagement. Maybe some grass top leaders were consulted or certain organizations. But when we're talking about something as important as people feeling safe in their own community, uh, it is important to have those deep conversations. And I want to also make sure that I'm not conflating the two, right? Many people who are experiencing homelessness are not using substances. And many people who are housed are using substances. And so we have to create uh, a an array of services across our region that meet people's needs. And I think we can do that if we find early opportunities for deep community engagement. On the topic of homelessness, the King County Regional Homelessness Authority has had a rocky road. CEO Mark Doan's left and the Partnership for Zero effort in downtown fizzled out. Do you have confidence in the agency and what needs to happen to right the ship? 
Well, number one, I think what we need is reliable funding. If you look at the model that the King County Regional Homelessness Authority was based on, it came from Los Angeles. Los Angeles County and Los Angeles City passed measures to fund the homelessness crisis there. We have a crisis across the West Coast. Seattle and LA need to be working in conjunction to address these issues. What LA has done is identify resources to fund their regional homelessness authority. We have not in this region. And the largest contributor to the Regional Homelessness Authority is the city of Seattle, followed closely by King County. Uh, And I appreciate that there's other jurisdictions that have stepped up locally to provide some resources in the last few years, but it's not enough. What I would love to see is a Regional Homelessness Authority that is treated more like a public development authority, a PDA, that has the ability to generate revenue so that it can be responding to the crises at the scale necessary. So levies on the ballot. Perhaps levies or perhaps there's additional tools that our state legislature sales taxes that uh, measure H in L.A., I believe, was a sales tax increase. And I used to bring around the book with me when we were first standing up the Regional Homelessness Authority to show people this incredible report that came out of L.A., but they talked about the need for revenue. Um, But that can't be the only answer, because I think there's been some trust that has been broken. Um, People want to see more immediate results. And I think that having an opportunity to bring in a new CEO that is going to be willing to hit the ground uh, running and identify ways that we can be responding quicker to some of these crises, I think it's going to be important. Trust with contractors, too. I mean, you can't have these agencies that the King County Regional Homelessness Authority contracts with not getting paid and having to max out credit cards. Not getting paid, not knowing when they would be paid. And uh, as as we talked about when I worked on the human service provider wages, these are the very folks that we are relying on for trusted relationships and getting people into housing. If you don't have a stable workforce, there's no way to make uh, a noticeable improvement in that arena. So investments in the contracts, in the workers who are providing those services um, is paramount. Okay, before we go, we got to talk about transit because this is something that lit up the producer conversation today when I was asking what people wanted to, to ask you. Oh, good. Obviously, King County Metro has had to suspend some routes lately because of budget issues and low ridership. They also had supply chain issues affecting bus maintenance. Um, some of these suspended routes were commuter service to and from the suburbs in King County. Are you expecting more route cuts? Do you think the routes will come back? What's the solution here? I mean, this is so hard because once you cut routes, once you reduce routes, uh, you reduce ridership and that can have lasting effects. We want to build ridership. We want to build trust. And that brings in additional revenue. I think that part of the solution is um, creating more avenues for the workforce to be present and available. It's not just that we don't have, um, you know, the funding that's necessary. Sometimes we don't have the routes because we don't have the workforce. So working with Algamated Transit Union, who did just sign their contract, and creating a recruitment strategy so that there's more of a workforce that's present is one thing that I want to focus on. Number two, as I heard from the drivers themselves, many of the vehicles that get taken out of circulation are out due to maintenance. We need to expedite our investments that we're putting into maintenance of vehicles so that we're not taking routes offline just because we're waiting for the parts and the mechanics to come together on the actual, you know, buses. When we have those sitting in a barn ready to go, we need to have the workforce and the materials necessary to get those buses back out in service. And I have to add to the transit sort of bucket as 
the council member that's serving Vashon Island. I want more water taxis on a frequent basis so that they are um, more of the route frequency that we see for the West Seattle ferry. What I'm really excited about is investing in a water taxi and small metro bus system like we see in West Seattle. Every time I take the water taxi back and forth from West Seattle to downtown, when I get off on the West Seattle side, there is a small metro bus waiting for me to take me up the hill. That is what we need on Vashon Island as well. Routine and regular water taxi services that can come throughout the day and then shuttles that will take people to the top. This can help increase frequency of being able to get on and off the island um, on regular basis without having to wait for the Washington Ferry System. And I appreciate our state legislative members who are continuing to work to scale up investments in the Washington Ferry System. But we can do something about it at King County, especially for Vashon, using the water taxi and the small metro buses. We are recording this and it's going to air on January 2nd, which is when you're going to be resigning from the city council. Your former colleagues have 20 days from now to appoint a replacement for you. Uh, There will be a special election later in the year to serve out the rest of your term through 2025. Before we go, what do you hope for in the next representative that's going to take your place in position eight? The number one thing I'm hoping for is someone who will come in with the same level of commitment to protecting and ensuring that the Jumpstart funding that we collectively pass in the city remains committed to the investment categories that we passed. And if there's going to be a conversation about increasing Jumpstart or other revenue sources that needs to be complementary of what we have passed already. This is a monumental policy that has been put into place. It has helped protect our city from going into the red. It has protected against austerity budgeting, and it has created an opportunity for generational wealth building through investments in housing and small businesses in arts and culture and Green New Deal. That cannot be taken away. It should not be taken away because it would be short-sighted to do so. There's immense pressure that is on the city to close the revenue gap uh, that our city will be experiencing in 2025, but it should not come on the shoulders of dismantling Jumpstart. I know that there's colleagues on council who are committed to this, and I appreciate that. We need to have a collective understanding and appreciation for what those investments will do in generations to come and the investments that it's making in creating a more equitable Seattle now. Are you worried about the dismantlement of Jumpstart? Every year since we've passed it, uh, there has been attempts to redirect that funding. Um, Regardless of who's been in the executive office, that has been an attempt. Um, And I understand, you know, the pressure is immense. I can understand on paper why that is an avenue that People might look at it as an option, but it should really be taken off the table. In my opinion, it should be taken off the table given the commitments that we have made to the community and the opportunity that is providing for a more just and equitable Seattle. And that, in the long term, is going to benefit small and large businesses, even those large businesses who continue to raise concerns about it. I'll say that we've won in the um, courts twice on Jumpstart, and we continue to win in the court of public opinion. Anything else you want to add about your legacy on the city council or the work ahead at the county? Well, I'm just so thankful. Honestly, the voters uh, who have 
helped to elect me the last three election cycles. And those who might not see eye to eye with me on existing policy, I hope what people see is someone who wants to hear various opinions, diverse opinions, and really wants to act with urgency to be a good legislator, to move forward on identifying strategies to respond to these compounding crises. Whether it's the pandemic or the shadow pandemic, we have helped to create a more resilient local economy. We've helped to invest in the health of workers and the health of working families. And at King County, I'll be able to work directly with you on the health of our infrastructure, the health of our uh, economy, and ensure that we are creating more healthy and affordable housing across our region. So thank you very much for the opportunity to have served in Seattle over the last six years. And I look forward to serving folks across this diverse county. She's not going far. Seattle City Council and soon-to-be King County Council member Teresa Muscada, thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Soundside. Don't forget you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime right here online at KUOW.org or, of course, on your favorite podcast app.